0: Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to Asking for a Friend. This podcast provides you with evidence-based information and real-world advice about getting to know yourself better. Just a warning, this podcast may contain some conversations of a sexual nature and isn't suitable for kids. In this week's episode... We're going to be asking for a friend all about the right to sexual pleasure. This is a topic that I'm particularly passionate about and believe that we really need to work to change the discourse on. But the guest I have on today is somebody who is the most passionate about it and has spent her career so far fighting for the right to pleasure for all of her patients. She is Dr. Klakling Mofakeng or Dr. T as she's more fondly known, and she's a globally recognized South African medical doctor and sexual health and reproductive health advocate. She's passionate about making sexual health and well-being services available to everyone, regardless of their sexual and gender identities or their economic status. Dr. T is in private practice today in Johannesburg and serves on the Commission for Gender Equality in South Africa. She was also advisor to the Technical Committee for the National Adolescent Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights Framework Strategy in South Africa, and has collaborated and contributed to various UN programs, including Combating HIV and AIDS. She's a thought leader, she's an influencer, and she's a highly respected expert for media including as the Let's Talk About Sex columnist for the Sunday Times and having published internationally in The Guardian, Teen Vogue, and Project Syndicate. She's the author of the 2019 best-selling book, Dr. T, Sexual Health and Pleasure, and actually has just recently been appointed United Nations Commission on Human Rights Special Rapporteur for Physical and Mental Health by the Human Rights Council. She is... One of the most impressive women I have the pleasure of knowing, and one of the people who's working in the field of sexual health and wellness, whose voice needs to be heard more and more.
1: Right, so welcome Dr. T. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast with you.
0: I I think I am one of the most excited, I would say I'm a little bit of a fan girl, if I'm honest, um, of you. And um, I am, I mean, this is a topic I'm incredibly passionate about. And I know that pleasure is like your topic, if I'm not mistaken. Definitely. Um, I'm the pleasure girl. You are the pleasure girl. You know, what was it that kind of got you into focusing so much on sexual pleasure?
1: You know, it was a personal experience that I had, you know, when I got to medical school, I was a young person myself. And I was even frustrated that even with the little bit of the medical knowledge that I had being a junior medical student, I still found that, um, you know, the the health communication and the content um, was really only speaking to me about either preventing a pregnancy or preventing HIV and not much else. And yet I was like, but I'm more than just preventing HIV and preventing pregnancy. There's so much about my own sexuality, my own experimentation, my own coming into sort of myself and and maturity, right? And I felt that I wasn't being held through that. And there wasn't enough um, out there in terms of services at the health, health facilities, but also content and health communication. And so I've always had this sort of first-hand experience of what it's like to be a young person who didn't have information and so i i in fact in, in medical school in my senior years you know did a project in family medicine that focused on youth friendly clinics and was really focusing on hearing first-hand from what other young people were saying and, and I, it was really true that we're all experiencing this deficit just in terms of the health information we were getting and that's how this issue of pleasure and sexual health and and women um, became part of my everyday medical, um, you know, experience and work.
0: You and I have have actually such a, a similar uh, story in that sense because even in the psychology field, I was given there was no information about pleasure. It was all about pathology, and it's something that I'm still noticing today. Is that healthcare professionals, whether you're in the medical field, whether you're in nursing, whether you're in um, psychology. Pleasure's just left out of educating us at it, it, yeah. healthcare professionals.
1: Absolutely. And so my fear was that I was graduating as a young doctor, already knowing that I had gaps in my knowledge. And even at the time, and, and I mean I'm much older than you, but we had a, a whole public health system strengthening initiatives, right, around HIV and and, and um accessibility of antiretroviral treatment and yet even in those spaces where you would think sexuality and sex you know is something that we speak about all the time in terms of stis but even in those discussions the issue of pleasure was not there even when people were talking about adherence to medication they were talking about disclosure of hiv status to partners there was still no talk about pleasure and it was so frustrating for me and that's why even immediately after i qualified um and again based on experience of of being a community health doctor um in the western of Johannesburg i had a lot of young people then already asking me questions but they would wait for me outside of the clinic you know, as I'm walking back to my car after work, they would then come and ask me all of these questions and we'd have sort of these secondary consultations happening outside. And it was fascinating for me about how even the space, the structure of the clinic, and how we think about curative medicine in the public health sector leaves so many people outside and and, and uncared for. Um, And and, and these conversations for me became so important. and, and, And I started to ask myself, what would happen to these young people when I go? Because I knew that the other medical people who were there too with me, unless you had a particular interest in sexual health and then the issues of sexual pleasure, these young people were, were almost going to just be left without knowledge you know without anyone to check um information with and i think for me that's how i ended up you know doing radio and, and writing a lot and doing columns because i thought well there must be other young people elsewhere who need this information
0: yeah absolutely and and yourself or myself as a young person once upon a time we needed that information and we didn't necessarily have anywhere to get it from unless we went looking for it ourselves mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder why you think it gets excluded so much, you know, from education, uh, both of uh, you know, of the public as well as healthcare professionals, from the cultural discourse. Why do you think we're not including pleasure in our in our discussions around sexual health?
1: So there is definitely a politics of the body a politics of, of of pleasure the politics of sex right um who gets to to be sexually liberated um and 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 you see this replicated in all spheres of society and industry you know i know that for example in in in, in medicine We were taught the penis, and we were taught um, anatomy. We were taught dissection, like male anatomy and dissection. But we were never taught about the clitoris. The Mm -hmm. fact that it's a 3D structure, and it's more than just the... You know that bean that everyone talks about under the literal hood. You know we never saw these things, and and unless you were having a particular interest in it, you then went and found out for yourself about the nerve, um, you know the the innovation and 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 the anatomy. And so even in the medical curriculum, there is a hierarchy to. To pleasure. And so you will find that um, the male genitalia, uh, male pleasure is almost normalized, right? You are taught in urology about male sexual dysfunction. And just as a by the way, you may hear about the effects of menopause on the vaginal um, walls and the decrease in estrogen and what that does, but you will not find as much focus, right? And a normalization of pleasure and and older women needing to be um, still experiencing pleasure even when they are older or in their elder years. And so the pharmaceutical industry in terms of the biomedical solutions of pleasure still favor male pleasure versus women's pleasure. And so it's about not just the politics of what we are taught, but this replicates itself in, in the biomedical solutions in what gets researched Male pleasure still gets, still gets researched and still gets more funding for research for biomedical solutions than women 's health and and women 's sexual dysfunction and therefore um, you know access to 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 sort of those those tools that improve or enhance pleasure for women and and so it, it's really it, it, it is part of that and and i I always say you know men get um, rewarded for being experimental you know they are called macho and 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 their sexual performance is very much linked to the ego right and penis size and how many rounds I can have one night whereas with women it's almost like we are taught that sex is something that happens to us right and someone does things to us and that's our participation into sex. And so you submitting to your male partner, we, we, are, we are taught as if that's a reward for being a good woman. So the male gaze and being desired by men is a reward for good women. And so they, there's something to be said about just even the psychology, right, around our bodies, the power dynamics in relationships. Um And again, those replicate themselves in other spaces of our lives, Um, And and, and definitely they they do have an impact on not only the ability of women to experience pleasure, but to talk about contraception, to make decisions about their own body and to then negotiate condom use in relationships. Um, Yeah. And that's why these issues are so important.
0: I mean, even if I just think back to being um, a teenager and getting an anatomy and biology lesson, you know, about reproductive organs, uh, the clitoris was excluded entirely. And it was completely male-focused, as you've been saying. I mean, it's crazy to think that the the full structure of the clitoris was only really, I mean, it was found in the late 1800s, but it was only really spoken about and 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 um, explored and examined in 2005. So, and, and this is the you know the absolute pivotal anatomy in terms of female, uh, pivotal organ. I mean, in terms of female sexual pleasure. So. Even myself as a young woman, and I'm sure you too, pleasure was never part of my narrative around sex. It was always risk and danger. It was always sexual, sexual health that excluded pleasure. And I think with, with what you've been saying about the real male focus um, and how we favor men and their pleasure, it's, it's, it's evident, as you say, even in, in, in training for healthcare professionals. And that's really quite something. And I guess I want to know what sexual pleasure means to you.
1: It's so important. Um, I mean, and I um to this day I'm still so thankful for, for my mom, you know, because I I don't remember having the talk with her. I do remember us though having just a generally open and free relationship where we could talk to each other and she would tell me things and I would ask her. Um and I remember there was an honesty in how When she didn't have answers, she would, you know, she would make me an appointment with our family doctor and I would go and ask him all these questions that I had. But I remember particularly the conversation with her where she said, you know, sex is not bad. Sex is not sinful. Sex is nice, but it's only nice if you want to have it and you are having it with who you want to have it with and you having it for yourself. And I can't remember how old I was, but I really remember that discussion so clearly. I think I was like either 15 or 16. And, and and now looking back, I think, oh my goodness, she taught me, she demystified sex firstly, and she actually taught me about consent in a very simple way without saying I'm teaching you about consent. And that was actually the foundation, Right for how I started to engage with myself and sex. And so even when I was experimenting with my own body, with self-play and self-pleasure and self-discovery, I wasn't doing it from a, from a place of fear or not wanting to be caught or feeling or internalizing or judging myself as if what I'm doing is wrong or bad or sinful or by extension, I am a, then a bad person, right? Or a bad girl or a bad woman. And I think that was so mentally freeing for me as a young person to experience a caregiver, a parent who spoke about sex in that manner and therefore made it easy for me to then ask her about um, the different you know, things that I was going through as a teenager. I mean, I remember at some point asking my mother how to break up with a boy because I was just like, I don't want to go out with them anymore. How do I break up with them? And for some time I really thought that was normal for everyone else and it's only when I really got older and I was in boarding school and I used to talk to my friends and realize that actually no ways everyone used to come and visit me at my house because I had a cool mom not because I was cool you know I had to really just accept that one day and be like no it's because of my mom that everyone used to come to my house and I really think that's so important because we really don't talk enough about the messaging that we get from early on when we are growing up, when we are teenagers and how that often sets the tone for your own relationship with your own body and how you relate to other people and how you navigate relationships. So I think for me, that was so important Ketuna, because that foundation that I had with my mom is what made me so confident with my own body because I knew that my body was mine. I knew that I had a right to decide how I wanted to e- e- explore my own body body and and even within relationships i knew that i didn't need to to have sex with someone to prove that i love them right or prove that they're important to me i knew that sex was something that's there and it's wonderful um but it didn't i didn't need it um to validate my relationships um with boyfriends and i think that was so it's so critical for me and why even when i became a peer educator um in medical school i think that was one of the the things that gave me the confidence right? Um, And and knowing that I wanted this for my peers too, I wanted them to be confident. And so even now, as someone who's been doing this now for more than a decade, you know, um, it's important for me to keep doing the work with young people, particularly because it's in those formative years where you can get it really right or get it really wrong. And then have adults who then have to go to therapy for all sorts of things um, that could have been prevented by just how we talk to young people.
0: Sure. There are so many things that you have just shared. But the first I want to say is it seems your mom is a trailblazer in the field of sexual health way before you were. And um, she, she could teach so many parents on how to help your kids de- develop, develop positively in their sexuality and in their, in, in their sexual experiences. And the, re- the really big standout thing for me there was the idea of permission. She was giving you permission. She wasn't, as you said, you know, telling you this was a sin, telling you that this was bad, that you were bad. She gave you permission continuously to 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 learn, to understand, to explore, to be curious. And I mean, as a therapist, it's one of the... I don't know. I would almost say it's probably the most common reason why people do experience difficulty sexually is because something that they have learned, been taught, have seen, haven't been told, have been told when they were little, when they were growing up that has affected them as an adult later on in life. And very often we don't make those connections. I think as adults, you know, one client may say to me after, you know, we've, we've gotten some time um, getting to know each other. They may say to me, you know, I never thought of the, of it that when I was little and my, Mom said this to me, like, you know, boys are dangerous, don't hold their hand. You can, you know, you must only ever hold their hands, or, you know, you should never ever go home with a boy. It's too dangerous. I didn't even realize that that, what seemingly was a small message, could have such a major impact on me. And I think that the conversations that are happening generationally between parent to child or grandparent to parent to child have to change in order for us to shift how it is that we view sex and how it is that we include sexual or how we can include sexual pleasure in, in our discussions around sex. Have you kind of felt there's been a real cultural difference in the narratives around pleasure that you've kind of come across and that you've experienced
1: in your work? Absolutely. Um, Look, I, I remember early on when Twitter was still a new sort of social media app in, in the country um, about how many of us as as especially as black women right used to use twitter as a safer space that we created for ourselves online because many of us were not experiencing safe spaces um, in real life where we could just talk and be ourselves and just identify with each other. You know, sometimes it's so important to know that there are other people going through what you are going through. I think this isolation and alienation and disconnect often makes people judge themselves as if they are abnormal or that whatever they are going through is because of some internal weakness that they have. So it was so important for me to actually, um, you know, find space on and and use social media, um, as an advocacy platform where I'm giving information to young people, where we are demystifying sex, where we talk about, um, you know, religion and cultural expectations of what it means to be a young woman, right? Um, and how, um, you know, our womanhood and, and our sexuality and, 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 and our ability to be sexually um, liberated is often seen as something that um, uh, impacts the entire community we are, we are part of, you know? This idea that your family name or your father's surname, you know, loses value because a young woman is seen to be a slut right? Versus if you are a good, well-behaved girl, then, um, you know, the other families may find an interest in your family and, and then want to come and lobola you because there's this respectability, right, that comes with your name and who you are and therefore by extension your family. And how many of us were having discussions about, you know, the fact that we want to be affirmed as young women first, as individuals, as people first, and our autonomy respected and our, and our ability and and our rights, right, to make decisions about our lives and and what we want to be, is important, and it's all linked to that, you know, um, about how how young women, particularly, um, are more policed in terms of sexuality and sexual expression, and and so social media for me has become that platform where we, young people were creating a safer space online, where we're sharing our own challenges, where we're learning very, very um, uh, openly about kink, right, mm-hmm. about BDSM, talking about consent and the fact that we were living in a country and still living in a country where, where rape culture is normalized and how in our wanting to be sexually liberated right where we wanting to be respected and our consent respected we have to at some point um be these activists and and we don't sign up for it we didn't say we wanted to be activists but that's that's what we were eventually where we were then just you know taking on the patriarchy head-on about rape and rape culture. But what's also fascinating is that in my own practice, I've had patients who were survivors of violence and rape and sexual harassment who wanted to experience fulfilling sexual lives again. And how that journey was so important for me as well, to start thinking about how to hold someone's hand, how to assist, how to create a safer space for women who maybe perhaps their first sexual experience um, was rape or the fact that they are married and they're experiencing marital rape within that long-term relationship and what that means for them. So it's been really fascinating for me, um, you know, being, being a young person in South Africa right now, but also how we've managed to use social media to create these safer spaces and these connections that we would otherwise not ordinarily have.
0: I mean, social media, it almost comes across as being a culture in its own with its own cultural norms, because, you know, what what what's culturally common for one group is is different in that social media space. It sounds, again, that word permission is coming up for me, permission to explore, permission to gain information and knowledge and be curious and ask questions and share information. There's a lot more of that happening. And I think that intersection between culture and pleasure is so interesting because if you look at different demographic groups, if we look at the Dutch, for example, versus the Americans versus the South Africans or sorry geographical groups the dutch have a have a very different um, outcome of sexual development versus the, the Americans where their education program is different because the Dutch focus on consent, on joy, on pleasure, whereas the Americans, and I know the South African model of education is like this as well. We focus on risks and dangers and kind of pathology, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the frustrating thing as a woman, a South African woman is that our bodies are viewed as someone else's. Our, vi- our bodies are viewed as not our, not our own, not for our own pleasure. Mm. That is something that, you know, no matter if you've, you, you've grown up in the city or you've grown up in a village, no matter if you are Indian, if you're white, if you are black, no matter if you are in your 20s or your 50s, I think that that is something that's really intensely affecting um, us as women in South Africa and in our ability to
1: feel comfortable to engage
0: with our own sexual pleasure.
1: Absolutely. Um, And that's why education and information is so important, you know, and and the reason why I wrote um, my book, the first one, Dr. T, A Guide to Sexual Health and Pleasure, was precisely because of that reason, Katriona, is that it doesn't matter where you are. As a woman in South Africa, we all crave to be affirmed. We all crave to be seen for who we are as individual people first. We are all craving to have our personal space respected. We are all craving to live in a society, in communities and homes that are free of violence, right? And we all need all of our rights, to be made with accessible services. I think it's such a thing, you know, in South Africa to think we have such a wonderful constitution, but for many people, especially in the peri-urban and rural areas, those rights are still not directly translated into services. And I think part of my work that I do on social media is giving people information about where to go for services and mapping providers, for example, for transgender women in the Northwest, in the rural areas of where to go for affirming transgender healthcare talking about you know access to safe abortion facilities, talking about issues of procurement and generic medicines registration and why all of those things are still linked to pleasure because your your right to have pleasurable sex starts with information, starts with your rights being protected, but it also has to link to you accessing safer sex tools, for example, accessing lubrication, knowing about anal sex, the fact that um, you know, we need to de-gender sex as well. And, 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 and it has been such a good thing to have condoms even, um, you know, uh, uh, renamed internal condom um, and external condom versus male or female condom, because we realize that there are many other genders between men uh, besides women and men, and, and therefore there are other people are having sex who may not find a male condom or a female condom inclusive of their own identity on who they are. So it's important to de-gender safer sex tools because to be intentional about being inclusive, it's important because even how we are having sex, it's not just a penis going into a vagina. There's vagina-to-vagina vagina sex, penis-to-penis penis sex, penis-to-anus sex. So there's so many other types of sex that we still need to talk about that we can't even get get there if we are still limiting ourselves to this heteronormative um, penis vagina sex. And I think part of the work that I do is to really be intentional about being inclusive and, 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 and really make sure that information gets to everyone who needs it and not only people who identify as, as women or only people who identify as men with certain genitalia and, and and not anything else. And I think it's so important to make sure that we are inclusive of sexual orientation gender identity and all the other different ways that people are having sex because just because I'm having anal sex doesn't mean that my gender um, has to change or my sexual orientation has to change so there's so much about debunking sex that we need to do and we won't do it if we are only talking about pathology about fear and disease, and which is why I really do like the Dutch way of thinking about sex. Um, And some of my colleagues are actually from Netherlands and they do such progressive work around sexual pleasure Um, you know, and especially for young people with really important um, results. And I think that's what we really need to to talk about. The fact that this work is evidence-based, it's research-based, and it's really just about assisting young people transition healthily from being teenagers, from being children into adulthood. And it's in that phase of transitioning that we need to be really, really, um, you know, creating moments and spaces and and giving information that's affirming and not, you know, positioning um, sex as danger or fearful.
0: Mm, And I think not merely looking at, at sexual health as the absence of of illness or disease, you know, um, it's absolutely crucial, you know, being a pleasure pioneer, if I can call you that, I don't know if you've been called that before, but I think that that's a very fitting, um, description for you. You know, I'm, I'm wondering in releasing your book, you know, what, what was, what was some of the things that really surprised you in terms of the feedback you were getting? I mean, people were just like,
1: yes, thank you. Hallelujah! At last, you know, um, we we having these discussions, and I think there, you know, there is something to be said about I think medical doctors seeming to be shy about these issues, and I think it speaks to something so important for me about personal development. A lot of a lot of us who are medics went to medical school as as children ourselves, right, and we qualify as medical doctors, and suddenly people think we will just miraculously. Mature, miraculously, then undergo this personal development that will make us these confident people who can then unlearn, firstly, what they were taught about sex be aware of the politics of sex and the power dynamics and then be the sex positive, um, you know, ambassadors, for example, it doesn't work that way. So I think for me, what was perhaps even more um, catching for people was that I'm actually a medical doctor who just happens to talk about sex in a very simple way, um, in a very non-judgmental way, non-stigmatized way. And I suppose that was kind of refreshing because there is still a lot of my colleagues who are still hell bent on this negative, um, talking down to people, um, and, and avoidance kind of, of, of talk. And they haven't really bought in into the idea of, you know, what I call the sexual triangle, sexual health, sexual rights, and sexual pleasure, and how all of those are interlinked and, and 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 can't be removed from each other. And so even how I do my consultations, it's always with that in mind, the fact that this person in front of me has certain rights that need to be protected and promoted and affirmed, there are certain health information that I need to give them, there are certain access to, to health care that they may require, but there's also an important part of who they are. It's about having pleasurable experiences, pleasurable sexual uh, lives, and, and and even though they may be experimenting, but to assist them in defining for themselves what it is that they want um, you know, for, 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 for experiencing um, pleasure. And it's so important when you're even thinking about in primary healthcare, right? Which is what I am. I'm a general practitioner. You have a lot of patients who have hypertension, who have diabetes, who have depression. And if you are not even going to Talk about sexual pleasure. You may be wondering, as a medical doctor, why is my patient not adhering to their hypertension medication? Why is this patient, um, you know, not seemingly wanting to to take their medication every day properly? Even if you're doing the levels of blood, you can see that they're not really taking their medication well. And for many of the patients, you may find that the side effects of the medication we give them actually causes some form of erectile dysfunction. Some antidepressants um, may cause some libido changes, right? Some medication, for example, like flu medication can cause vaginal dryness. The same way it causes dryness in the mouth, it can cause um, vaginal dryness and leads to painful non-lubricated sex. How do we then assist patients? Understand firstly what's happening to their body, understand the side effects of some of the medication. That's important that they must keep taking their medication, but have a discussion about using of lubricants, communication with their partner, managing expectations, understanding how they can incorporate sex toys, for example. All of those things are so important, but you can't, you find that medical people are very resistant to talking about sexual pleasure because of their own personal views and 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 they're shy about it and they too haven't done that work of unlearning and learning new ways and i think that's i think for me what the disconnect is in 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 especially in medical care Um, but it's important um for the reasons that i've just discussed it's very important that even if you are talking about a person with hypertension to realize why sexual pleasure may be important for the management of that hypertension, for the prevention of a stroke, simply by discussing and telling your patient that some medication may cause erectile dysfunction. If they experience one, two, three, four symptoms, please let me know and we can find other ways of assisting and rather not stop taking your medication. Um, and this is why it's important to catch you on and to make these linkages with mm. other um, medical um, situations, with other medical diagnoses to show everybody why sexual pleasure is really important because at the end of the day, humans um, always seek pleasure. We seek pleasure in food. We seek pleasure in, in music in travel. We seek pleasure even in sex. And so we can't um, ignore or try to run away from the fact that people are having sex because primarily it's pleasurable.
0: I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Boston and May study from, I think, 2003 that found... 237 reasons why we have sex and because it feels nice because I wanted to connect with my partner are just two of those 237 reasons why and those two connect to pleasure. There are so many reasons that connect to pleasure of why we have sex, but we just don't, we don't speak about it. You know, why are we having sex? We're having sex because we want to have a baby. Okay. Can you still have pleasure while you're trying for a baby? Yes, absolutely. Thank you you know, your pleasure doesn't have to go out the window just because you're trying to conceive. So um, I'd love to, to talk a little bit about how COVID has kind of impacted pleasure a little bit. I know that I attended an awesome seminar that you gave last week for the World Association of Sexual Health um, on World Sexual Health Day, the 4th of September. But I'd love to to hear from you and get my listeners to hear from you a
1: little bit about what COVID has done to the landscape of sexual pleasure. Yes. I mean, initially with COVID, um, it, it was such a dynamic and emerging you know, health emergency at the time. And everyone, of course, and rightfully so, was focused on, you know, the issues of prevention and treatment of COVID and the global sort of um, response to it. And once that became a reality for us in South Africa, people started to ask then, and and, and started off as if it was the silly conversations we're having online about pleasure, you know, and people making jokes and say, well, can we still, you know, give blowjobs? Can you still receive oral sex? Um, what about, you know, the fact that my partner is a doctor or a, or a nurse or an essential services worker? What does that mean for us in our sexual health? And I think the president, you know, put a spanner in the works when he said to, this, to, to all of us during a press briefing that one night um, that there's, there must be no kissing right and so it was like okay no kissing but what does that actually mean and like what do you mean no kissing like a saliva problem problem is is what what is the problem you know yeah. and of course we know that sex is, is messy right there's lots of kissing and sex there's genitalia involved there's oral sex involved um lots of sweating lots of skin contact and people had real questions to ask like what do we do about sex and, um, and, 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 and other things around relationships, right? And not just the act of having sex itself, but the fact that people were in lockdown and they were not ready to be in lockdown with people who were not their long-term partners. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never thought about that. Like, okay, there are people who are locked down who are not ready to be in this situation with this person for two weeks on end, you know, and now they find themselves in this situation what do we do? And so, yeah, we had lots of fascinating discussions about relationships. And funny enough, you then had people who were in in, in long distance relationships because one partner works away from town. um, And then with lockdown, they were able to come back home. And how many couples were loving that. People were loving the idea and the fact that they were you know, lockdown, um, and they were getting to spend time with their partners. So people were experiencing lockdown in many different ways, um, you know, from relationships to situationships, um, you know, to friends with benefits who ended up in a situationship because of COVID um, and how people just navigating all of that. And it was really only until the 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 new york city health you know uh, uh, published some guidelines which were really really helpful i think and it was the first time that i really saw um sexual and sex positive but specific information related to covid um you know the fact that even at the time research was still being done to see if um you know covid was sexually transmitted there was still research to see if the COVID found in semen was actually infective or infectious or not, um, and this was really invaluable information um, that I was passing on through my social media networks um, and, and some of the webinars that we were having, and the fact that people actually had to start thinking about contraception because they were not sure about you know the, the impact of COVID on on the embryo. Um, and the fetus, um, there were lots of concerns, you know, from people who were already pregnant, um, and 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 the reassurance for them was at least, well, you know, if they went for their antenatal care, they could get those fetal scans done, and 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 hopefully, you know, any fetal medicine specialist could pick up if there were any any problems. But yeah, the the issues were ranging um, from all sorts of, um, you know, concerns around sex and sexuality and and, and pregnancy as well.
0: Yeah, I think it was incredibly confusing. And, and isn't it wonderful that there was this kind of like, oh my goodness, but but how can we continue to experience sex and have sexual pleasure and connect with a partner or a, a, you know, um a friend with benefits when we are in lockdown and when we're being told that we mustn't be within, you know, one and a half to two meters of somebody and we must wear a mask at all time. I mean, there's not Anything Absolutely. particularly sexy about having sex with a mask on, unless you're into some kind of kink. So it, t- it takes away some of the intimacy of the situation as
1: well. Absolutely. But I think also, Absolutely.
0: you know, myself and in, in what I experience with some of my clients, I experience makeups and breakups, and then, as you said, you know, issues with contraception, and okay, maybe you now this is a good time to try for a baby since we're at home alone, and some couples rekindling their intimacy and the connection in the relationship, and some couples lockdown acting as a kind of pressure cooker to the 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 difficulties that they were facing. I think the word that you used when I asked the question was dynamic. And I think it's still, this is such a dynamic situation still, but we are adjusting to it slowly and surely and trying to fumble our way through it and figure out how it is that we can continue to experience the, the things in life that we enjoy and thankfully sexual pleasure is one of those things we have access to at all times because masturbation is something you can always do. I think, I think it was Woody Allen who said that masturbation is the most fun that you can have by yourself. And, you know, that is the kind of thing that I've been saying to my clients who have been separated from their partners due to lockdown or aren't in a relationship is that you can still experience sexual pleasure even though you're on your own. I know that sometimes we long to have the connection of another human being or to feel another human being's touch on our skin. But masturbation is an awesome way to experience sexual pleasure.
1: Mm, and it's important because, especially if you think about COVID and all the concerns, it's still the safest form of sex to have in any case, right? So you are doing a lot of things <laughs> when you're masturbating. You're not only having pleasure, but you're having safe sex. Um, and, and the other thing is that people were starting to actually want to buy sex toys. And in Roman South Africa, our lockdown level five made online shopping impossible. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of discussion even then about how do we then, um, you know, try and convince the government, <laughs> you yeah. know, to take sexual pleasure seriously, and the fact that we need access to safer sex tools beyond just condoms and lubricants. And I remember how you know people used to go shopping and take photos of the condom aisle and the lubricant aisle, um, you know, to be like, yo, South Africans are really busy." And I used to come in there and say, "Actually, you can't shame people." who are actually being um, proactive in in, in taking their sexual health seriously. The fact that the condom aisle is out of stock is brilliant. It's good. It means people understand the fact that um, having safer sex is a good thing and they are seeking um, those safer sex tools. And so, um, you know, you're not going to shame anyone, not on my watch, um, you know, about the fact that people are buying lubricants and condoms. And so there was this other renewed, I suppose, wave of information around safer sex, around the fact that, in fact, we should be worrying about STIs in their entirety because we always talk about HIV, right, and, and, and exceptionalizing it. But sometimes we forget to, to remind women to treat, you know, other STIs and have the a discharge that's that's not normal for them, that's changing in colour or odier or frequency to get it checked out because you may have other bacterial um stis which may actually impact your reproductive organs your fallopian tubes that may lead to chronic pain that may lead to then having painful sex later you know so it was so important to to talk about sexual health broadly, because what COVID then brought us, the uncertainty, um, we had to go back to the really basic, basic, basic in terms of, you know, sexual health advice. And it was really, really great, um, you know, to also then talk about, you know, the fact that relationships and setting expectations, some people had to still be working during lockdown. And what does it mean when you are in the home um, you don't have the the privilege of being outside to work and then coming back to check in with your family. So you, you are having to work while everybody, you know, seems to be relaxed and, 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 and not working and what that pressure can do to a relationship if you are not communicating about, you know, the fact that you are all anxious. Um, some people were worried about losing their work, some people were really anxious about um, you know, losing their home or their car. And so homeschooling. Right? Parents were exhausted. And so there was this expectation that we are together all this time and therefore our sex life is just going to just Mm. go off the roof. But in reality, there was just so much anxiety. And tension and stress and pressure and i think communication in relationships was another aspect that i really focused on a lot to manage each other's expectations and to talk about um, some of the things that we may have um, neglected and and this gives us time to kind of do that work and and i was quite um, you know pleased to see that telehealth and and teleconsultations um, you know in terms of the hpcsa they relaxed their guidelines and and people could do um, you know consultations, especially with existing clients? And I think that was very, very important because people were going through a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. And sometimes all we just they just needed to know is, yes, of course you are going through a global pandemic, and you are worried about your job, finances, surviving a pandemic. It's okay that you are not even thinking about sex it's okay that your libido seems to not be the what you know like that is okay too um so that we normalized all of these different ways that the pandemic was impacting us and then how we responded in terms of sexuality and being sexual and pleasure and pleasureful um experiences it was also okay to not feel like you want to have sex and also validate those experiences
0: You know, that was the the number one thing I was saying in March. I I was, you know, speaking to media and being asked for comment. And one of the things that I was saying is everybody thinks they're going to be at home and they're going to be having, you know, raging sex sessions and swinging from the ceilings and i'm expecting the complete opposite because we're filled with so much anxiety and so much uncertainty and being in a confined space in a domestic space day in day out where you're having to play mom or dad or teacher or you know cleaner or cook or employee or employer all of these different roles the role of lover is going to get knocked even further down the list of things to do in a day and it's 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 so interesting hearing you say that you've seen that as well with your patients because that expectation versus the reality, there was a big difference between the two of them. And I think you and I both knew that it wasn't going to be what everybody had hoped it would be. But unfortunately, in order for it to be like that, there are so many different things that need to come into play, which, you know, is a whole other podcast in itself. So the question that I wanted to ask that I I'm I'm asking all my guests at the end of the podcast is having worked in this field for as long as you have, what's been one of the most surprising things that you've learned in your work?
1: I've learned that people actually all of them seek affirmation. I've learned that even when people have information, there is still so much that holds them back. And that's that internal dialogue um that people then internalize you know and 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 i've learned that no matter who you are where you are race class gender geographical position it doesn't matter at the end of the day we will all seek pleasure and it's about how i can use medicine to assist people attain the highest possible point of sexual pleasure for their lives because at the end of the day that is actually what we all want, mm. and that's what I've learned.
0: Mm. Mm. I love that. Um, thank you for joining me on today. I'm I'm eternally grateful that I got to spend some time with you talking about this. You are an incredibly busy woman, and and the work that you're doing truly is is forging the way for what I think can be a change to take place in not only the way we talk about it, but the way that we experience sexual pleasure too. So thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Kat. Got a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram, and I'll be sure to include it in a Q&A episode soon. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it.